welcome to the Justin Peters program, where we're searching the scriptures to see if these things are so, studying to show ourselves approved, rightfully dividing the word of truth so that we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here's your host, Justin Peters. Welcome to the program, ladies and gentlemen. I hope that you are doing well. I want to thank you so very much for joining me. And uh, my guest, Jim Osmond, we've been doing a series of programs on spiritual warfare. Jim is my pastor, and he has written a book entitled Truth or Territory, A Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare. Jim, last week's program, we were talking about hexes, generational curses. Uh, This is a notion that uh, is erroneously taken from Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Uh, but the, just briefly, the Bible does say something about God visiting the iniquity of uh, the, the father on, onto the third and fourth generation. So just in, a, in a, a minute or so, clear up this notion for us, what we talked about last week. Yeah, in, in Exodus 20, verse 5 there, what, what's being dealt with is, is God's willingness to bless his people uh, for their obedience and his uh, ability and willingness to also send curses upon them for their disobedience under the quid pro quo covenant of the Old Testament. Obedience brought cursing. Uh, sorry, obedience brought blessing. Disobedience brought cursing. And and God is just simply saying, the one who hates me, even to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, this lineage that hates me, I will curse them. The lineage that loves me, I would even bless them to the thousandth generation of those who love me. So the cursing rests upon those who hate God. No matter how many generations down, the blessing rests upon those who love, O God, and obey him. No matter how many generations down we go, um, it is not describing a righteous person being cursed for the sins of his grandfather. Yeah. Okay. In Ezekiel 18, we talked a little bit about that, about how God, uh, we are each responsible for our own actions. Right. Uh, God does not punish the children for the sins of their fathers or bless the children for the righteousness of their fathers. But each man is handled according to his own deeds. God deals with each one according to his own conduct and righteousness or lack thereof. So next time you're watching uh, Christian television and uh, Rod Parsley says for you to sow a $205 seed based on Exodus 20, verse 5, so you can break that generational curse. Does he really do that? Uh, that that, that is, I don't know. I haven't did, heard it. He did one of that to like Isaiah or Psalms oh, or something like that. Oh, he does that all the time. I don't yeah. know that he's done it specifically with chapter 20, verse 5 at Exodus, but, but uh, he does do that uh, with... Uh, what is it? I'm, I'm, oh, off the top of my yeah, head. Caught you Isaiah. On, yeah, it caught me off guard. Uh, but he does, they all do this. They'll take passages out of Psalm, Proverbs, uh, Isaiah. $205? Why not $20.50? Well, see, they'll do because that Because there's too. a colon between them. They'll, they'll do that, too. They'll, sometimes they'll say uh, $20.50, for example. twenty excuse, $2.05. Uh, they don't ever go that low. No, they, 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 they want to look bigger. See, but if... But if you really want to break the generational curses, go ahead and bump up to $205. Or if you, you really want to be free, you know, $2,050, you know, and it just goes up from there. Um, the more Isaiah, blessed. Oh, Isaiah 50, I know what it is. Isaiah 53. Oh, I'd have to. It escaped me. Anyway, <laughs> but they do this. They do this. And, and most of those watching me know it. You hear it all the time. So a seed based off of some, you know, whatever, 63 verse whatever. And uh, so they do this. But it's a, it's a scam. These people are, are charlatans. They are greasy snake oil salesmen. My sincere apologies to all snake oil salesmen. Snake oil salesmen yeah. out there for such an unfortunate comparison. <laughs> 
Okay. So this week, Jim, this week we are talking about what may be the most widely known and yet the most widely misunderstood concept of spiritual warfare and binding satan binding satan and binding satan and rebuking satan so you can apparently bind him and rebuke him maybe you rebuke him after you've bound him you want to do that because if you don't bind him first he'll get mad and attack you right so, so rebuke him. To you just don't want to you don't want first. to rebuke an unbound devil no no, no. that would not be wise it'd be like uh you, you, you don't want to slap somebody until you put handcuffs on them right. once you handcuffed them you can slap them around <laughs> then you can slap them around and yeah. insult them right. <laughs> so so we may take depending on how our time goes we may take two weeks to to deal with this maybe this week binding and next week rebuking so uh but this is, Jim. I would I would dare say, I, I, of all the different elements of spiritual warfare, uh, I would say that this is the one that I hear the most. I hear I've heard all of them, but this is probably the one I hear the most. Yeah, this one's not restricted to charismatic or word faith circles. Um, you'll, you'll find this even amongst uh, your most. Uh, you know, your most conservative, um, you picture your, your elderly church person lady sitting in the congregation wearing her little bonnet, and she's been part of the church for, for dozens of years. You'll even find people like that uh, binding Satan. Uh, this is not restricted to charismatic or even word faith circles. It's kind of made its way into all the corners of the church. Um, I think I mentioned a couple episodes ago that we, we had a friend we used to pray with before every service here at Cooney. And um, it, it was not uncommon to hear him pray, you know, Lord, we just pray that you would bind Satan. Bind Satan from this place so that he might not have any influence. And uh, so this is kind of this, this vernacular has worked its way into evangelicalism. And the belief is basically that by saying the words, I bind you, Satan, that is addressing Satan himself and praying to him, right. which should send a shudder down the spine of every true believer, of praying or uttering words to Satan and saying, I bind you, Satan, or just by declaring or pronouncing or announcing with our words, I bind Satan, by saying that, that we can hinder his influence or his power or his activity. And we're supposed to do this in relation to geographical locations. I bind him from the city of Kootenai, or I bind him from Bonner County, right. or I bind Satan and restrict him from attending this worship event or this prayer meeting or this evangelistic crusade or whatever it is, that somehow in uttering this phrase, we have stripped Satan of his power and we have in some way hindered him and his ability to have influence or to uh, work his deeds of darkness amongst us or by us. It's, it's, it's almost like kryptonite to Superman, these words, I right. find you. Right, that's right, yeah. That's a, good, that's a good analogy, kryptonite to Superman. I should have included that in the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That he, that he, you say these words, I bind you, and all of a sudden you have unleashed with your words some spiritual power or force that, that now takes away his powers and restricts him in some way. Right. That's, right. It, it sounds hocus-pocus. Because it is, I think, hocus-pocus. It is. It is. It is. Uh, now, 30, 30 plus years ago, this notion of binding Satan or rebuking Satan, it would have been relegated primarily to the charismatic churches, to the to the Word of Faith churches, um, what would become New Apostolic Reformation, this, so this wild, these more wild-eyed charismatics, but, but not so anymore. As you said, this is, this is mainstream. Uh, yeah. this, is, this is in Southern Baptist churches. Yep. This is in... Your conservative, orthodox, otherwise biblical churches, this, this vernacular comes into it, and, and people are trained through hearing it, traditions handed down, that this is how we wage effective spiritual warfare. Right. And, and you do hear it 
in word of faith charismatic circles. You certainly do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you hear it, New Apostolic Reformation. You know, you can almost hear, you almost hear in your mind or in your ears Joyce Meyer saying that or Beth Moore. You know, oh, yeah. I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. Right. I don't right. know if that's, is that Gloria Copeland? Did I do a good Gloria Copeland? Yes, yeah, that's pretty good. I nailed it, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> a little scary. But, uh, yeah, and, and uh, so it's very, very common. Uh, give us a couple examples, uh, Jim, of, of some things that we could, uh, some primary sources for this. Sure. I, uh, Bill Gothard is um, he's one that goes back a long time for me that I first, uh, early in my Christian walk, heard uh, Bill Gothard offer uh, a prayer to bind Satan and build a hedge of thorns. And, and Gothard says in his book, The Rebuilder's Guide, uh, he offers this prayer, quote, Heavenly Father, I ask you to rebuke and bind Satan in the name and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. Now, once again, it's the wording that is used that is suggested that this wording has special power. We're supposed to do this in the name and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that raises the question, what if I don't use through the blood? Is my binding is effective? If I don't do it in the name of Jesus, can I just say I bind you? Can I bind him in the name of Jesus? Or do I have to bind him in the name of Jesus and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? See, this is a, you got to get the, you got to get the wording down because it's all in the wording. It's all in your mantra, your prayer mantra, and your approach to these certain things. And by saying certain words and calling on, I hate to use the term, but incantations, certain incantations that we have power to affect something in the spiritual realm through our Christianized incantations. Right. So imagine a Harry Potter novel, novel, baptized in Christian lingo, and that's the modern-day spiritual warfare movement, that this right. has affected in that way. Right. Uh, and Gothard writes, before we attempt, quote, before we attempt to reclaim a loved one who has come under Satan's power, we must first bind Satan. Otherwise, he works through that loved one to create a reaction toward every attempt at restoration. Attempting to spoil Satan's house without binding him will only result in arguments, end quote. Now, how he knows this, this is an entire theology built on the words binding Satan, or bind the strong man in Matthew 12, which we'll look at in a moment. But this is all stuff that he says this is true, and we have to take Bill Gothard's word for it. Why is it that we have to do this before we reclaim a loved one who's come under Satan's power? How is it that we are to deliver people from Satan's power by binding him or somehow tying his hands, and that this makes them more deliverable? That's just that's nonsense. Right. Neil T. Anderson, in a, uh, in a prayer which he gives for supposedly binding Satan from interfering with loved ones, he says this, and, and every time I use the word name, you have to insert, and you say, here's the formula prayer, you have to insert the name of the person you're praying for. So Anderson writes this, quote, We agree that every evil spirit that is in or around name be bound to silence. They cannot inflict any pain, speak to name's mind, or prevent name from hearing, seeing, or speaking. Now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you, Satan, and all your hosts to release name and remain bound and gagged so that name will be able to obey God. I see this is this is this person has been able now he's able to obey God he's able to come to the truth because you have gone through the work of binding Satan and keeping him from influencing name right whoever that is and that's just it's mumbo jumbo it's it's hocus pocus yeah. it's a, it's an incantation baptized in Christian lingo on the 700 club and I'll give you another example uh, Pat Robertson he has that bring it on segment at the end that for comic relief, <laughs> Kathy and I will watch that. If you've never seen the Seven Hundred Club, and I'm sure most of you probably have, watch the Bring It On segment. It is, I, we don't know whether to laugh or to cry. Yeah, I, sometimes I've done both. I've laughed to the point where I've cried. Yeah, 
uh, uh, that's where he he fields the questions from the audience. And, and there's nothing bad, better for comic relief purposes than Pat Robertson unscripted. Oh yeah, and that is when he has come up with the stuff that you see on YouTube and and Bill right. Maher. Right. <laughs> where they, where they mock him and they mock Christianity because of the things that he says unscripted. Absolutely. But anyway, in his Bring It On segment, Robertson was asked a question by Gilbert, and here's the question: "Quote, our household has been under attack lately by the devil." Are we supposed to rebuke the devil in Jesus' name or just look to God to take care of the matter for us? End quote. And so here's, what, here's Robertson's answer. Quote, can you do his voice, by the way? <laughs> Probably not any okay. better than you. But. Well, you kind of got the southern thing going on. <laughs> well, okay, I'll, I'll read it. You Robertson got it? Said, I, yeah, we've watched him so much. Robertson said, I'm you not going to try to do it. You can nail it. I'm not a, he says, quote, ladies and gentlemen, Pat Robertson, take it away. <laughs> he says, I think you need to wage spiritual warfare and you need to understand what you are doing. But uh, I, uh, I think we should say, if you want something to say is, I bind you, Satan, and the forces of evil. And uh, in the name of Jesus, I bind your power, which means you nullify the power of what he's exercising against you. That is the way you deal with this situation, I think. And you'll, End quote. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, perfect. You nailed it. I, mean, I could I could see Pat Robertson in my mind as you were saying that. I could well, I could see him. That's scary. Shaking his head, looking at the floor. He is. Gosh, this bring it on segment. He has uttered some of the. I mean, he has actually encouraged men to leave their wives. I heard that one. If yeah. they if they have come down with Alzheimer's. Yeah. So. Because you're not married to her, she can't remember you. Yeah, yeah. I guess if, if she can't remember you, she may as well be dead. So uh, yeah, go ahead and move on with your <laughs> life and find somebody else. And they, he actually said that. Yeah. So anyway, well, I mean, your Pat, your Pat Robertson wasn't as good as my Joyce Meyer, but we'll let it go. <laughs> All right. So th- these, uh, so that's the teaching. That's the teaching. We have to bind Satan, and by saying that statement, by saying those words, that we somehow restrict his influence, keep him from moving, keep him from acting. Um, there are, of course, this is supported with proof texts. These are not texts taken in their context. These are not texts that have anything to do with spiritual warfare whatsoever, or even what we should do towards Satan. The passages, ironically enough, that speak of us, of us and how we handle Satan, they're not even mentioned in contexts like this by these spiritual warfare teachers. Okay. They don't talk about you know being humble um, and standing and resisting the devil. They don't talk about that. They talk about they use these passages completely out of context. And there are three verses, and you'll listen, you'll hear the the, the language of binding again in each one of these. Matthew twelve twenty nine, Jesus said. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? So see there they say, the strong man is Satan. That's the big one. That's the big one. Yeah, the strong man is Satan, and uh, we need to bind him first and then carry off his plunder. And, of course, that's that's uh, is spiritualized and taken that his plunder is people who are held in his captive, in, under his captivity, in bondage to Satan. And so if you want to deliver a loved one from Satan... You need to bind Satan first, right? And so that's the that's how it's prescribed. In fact, I mentioned I think it was in the very first episode that tape that I got, where the man went through the whole formula of how you get a loved one delivered from Satan. You got to rebind, rebuke, renounce, you know, pray, hedge, protection, all that. Right. This was the passage he used, Matthew twelve twenty nine, and anybody reading that would say, okay, yeah, Satan's the strong man. We need to bind him. We need to plunder his house, so I better bind him. Makes sense. There's my biblical warrant. It makes sense. And the third, the second one is Matthew sixteen nineteen. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. 
And likewise, Matthew 18, 18 says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So those are the three passages. Those are the proof texts that they use. Okay, so let's let's take them one by one. What what about the the big one, Matthew twelve? Matthew twelve is the, the is the big one because it actually man, mentions the strong man and plundering his house. So that is, if you're familiar with Matthew twelve, Matthew eleven, twelve, and thirteen, Matthew twelve is the passage where Jesus is rejected by the Pharisees, and, and ultimately Jesus speaks of the unforgivable sin being the um, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where the Pharisees were attributing the works of Christ to the power of Satan. And it is in that context where the Pharisees have rejected him. They have come face to face with his with two things, his messianic claims and the proof of his messianic claims, which were his mighty works. And those miracles that Jesus did proved that he was who he claimed to be and that he was the Messiah. And what Jesus is doing in that passage is is saying to the Pharisees that he has demonstrated himself to be the Messiah because he has come, he, Jesus, has come into the strong man's house, as it were, and plundered his goods. The, the Jews would have expected the Messiah to be someone who had the power over Satan and over demons. So the activities that Jesus did, the signs that he did, demonstrated, some of those signs demonstrated that he had the power over Satan. He was able to exercise demons. He was able to send demons to the pit. He had confrontation with demonic forces. And we'll talk about the context for those confrontations in a later episode. But these things demonstrated that he was the Messiah and that his messianic claims were his messianic claims were genuine. So all Jesus is doing is using this this analogy of a strong man and having his house plundered to say, see, this is the evidence that I am the Messiah. I can come here and take what is Satan's. Okay. That's all he's doing. Right. All it is is an analogy for I am greater than the strong man. Therefore, I am not doing this under the strong man's power. I'm not doing this under satanic power. This is not Satan's blessing on me that allows me to cast out demons, to heal people. I don't do these signs by the power of Beelzebub because I'm actually plundering Beelzebub. So that makes no sense. So all he's doing is making an analogy here between uh, to, to show that he is the Messiah because he has come and done what they expected the Messiah to do, and that is to conquer and defeat and destroy the strong man, who is Satan. Right. Now, you can't take something that describes Christ's messianic office and his power and his credentials and say, this now is a warrant and instruction on how we are to do spiritual warfare. Right. And once again, in the context of Matthew 12, it's not spiritual warfare that's being talked about. It's the messianic credentials of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the issue. Right. And this brings up a good point in, uh, as it relates to, to overall hermeneutics, does it not, Jim? Because there is a... There's a difference between something in Scripture being descriptive and prescriptive. Right. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this would be descriptive, um, even in, just in the sense that Jesus is not prescribing to us a method of spiritual warfare. This is not a tool in our spiritual warfare arsenal. It, it is an analogy that describes his historic confrontation with the forces of darkness, a unique once-for-all confrontation with Satan and a defeat of Satan's kingdom and a plundering of that which belonged to Satan right. as Jesus takes and sets the captives free. Right. 
that, that is a description of a historic instance and a, and a historic context. It is not at all intended to be a prescription. Jesus didn't sit down and say, okay, here's how you do spiritual warfare. First, you had, number one, bind the strong man. Right. Number two, pray heads thorns around the strong man. <laughs> number three, renounce all generational curses that strong man has on your family. That's not what Jesus is doing at all. Right. Right. That that is a that is a huge issue, and I think this is this is where so many people really get off in the weeds, because they read the entire Bible as if it's prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are prescriptive parts to the Bible, yeah. but there are also descriptive parts that is describing a real event in history, but it is not assumed to be repeated. It is not assumed to be normative right. for the Christian's life. I sometimes give the example: God made a donkey talk <laughs> in Numbers chapter twenty-two. But I haven't seen a lot of talking donkeys around, and if if you have been seeing talking donkeys, then you probably need to stop sipping on the suds. Yeah. So, or visiting Colorado or Washington. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Smoking the uh, <laughs> wacky weed or whatever it is. Uh, yeah. So th- there's big differences. So that's why we need hermeneutics. This is why we need to be able to read the Bible rightly, interpret it rightly, uh, look at the context. What's going on? Is this what kind of what genre of literature is this? Is, is this historical narrative? Is this doctrinal? Is this, you know, ask those questions. To whom is it written? What is this, what is this saying? So, uh, And not everything that is described is intended to be duplicated by us or repeated by us. That's right. Just because it describes this event happening, we still have to ask, does it look like this is intended to be repeated? Right. Yeah. You should yeah. do a series of... Our, um, series on hermeneutics? Yeah. You should, should do a series of radio I've programs been on hermeneutics. I've doing that very thing. Yep. <laughs> All right. So, well, well, that's that's the that's the that's big the big one. one Matthew that's, twelve twenty nine. That, yeah, that's that's the big one. So uh, let's go to the secondary ones. Matthew sixteen. Matthew sixteen and Matthew eighteen are are similar passages. They're not parallel in the sense that they are two accounts of the same thing, but they are similar in that the wording is used. The wording that is used is similar. In Matthew sixteen, Jesus says, "I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Um, in th- these are both in context of the church. In Matthew 16, Jesus is describing the um, giving Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and that is in the context of Peter's confession of of faith. You are thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God, um, and Jesus says, "Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven." And then he gives. Peter, the keys of the kingdom. What are the keys of the kingdom? And Peter has authority then to bind on earth what has been bound in heaven, to loose on earth what has been loosed in heaven. And this is kind of a, a rabbinic, it is a rabbinic phraseology and a sort of a Hebrewism um, describing what is what is allowed or permitted and what is restricted or forbidden. And it is that which is was forbidden was considered that which was bound, that was which was per- permitted was that which was loosed. So he's using a rabbinic phrasing to describe Peter's authority to announce what has been permitted by heaven or what has been forbidden by heaven. And that's the binding and loosing. If you had gone back and sat down in Matthew 16, 20 with Peter and said, Peter, what did you understand Jesus to say just now? Peter would have said, that's the phrasing that the rabbis use to describe something permitted and forbidden. Peter would never have said, Jesus just told me that I need to bind Satan. He never would have said that. Right. He never would have understood that phrase. Those, those Greek words, deo and luo, they describe this, this permitting and this forbidding. And what is it that Peter is forbidding and permitting? It is 
access to the kingdom, what is, the, the setting of the doctrinal standard, the, the making of the canon, the marking of what is permitted in, within the church, and what constitutes saving faith and access to the kingdom of God. Right. That's what's being described there. The theological description, uh, dictionary of the New Testament uses, uh, speaks of those two terms, Deo and Luo, and it says, quote, Jesus does not give to Peter and the other disciples any power to enchant or to free by magic. The customary meaning of the rabbinic expressions is equally incontestable, namely to declare forbidden or permitted and thus to impose or remove an obligation by a doctrinal decision. End quote. So it is th- those two words are future perfect indicative, and, and it kind of is difficult to translate into English. Um, but a literal translation in English would read something like, "Whatever you bind on earth is that which shall have already been bound in the heavens, and whatever you loose on earth is that which shall already have been loosed in the heavens." So, in other words, Peter's responsibility in the context of Matthew 16 was to announce on earth what had been determined in heaven, what heaven has permitted we are free to announce as having been permitted. You can gain access to heaven this way. What is forbidden by heaven is that which we are to announce by our this authority on earth as being what is prohibited in heaven. And, and these things that are either permitted or prohibited, it has already been established in heaven. Yeah. It's already been established, shall have been bound, shall have been loosed. We are just announcing what God has decreed. Exactly, exactly. And, and this is not... This is not announcing my my victory in Christ to push back the domain of darkness like we talked about removing hexes and hedges and stuff like this. That's not the type of announcing we are talking about. We are talking about announcing the truth. You can have your sins forgiven because heaven has decreed that you can have access to God through Jesus Christ. The truth is what we proclaim and is the truth which has already been settled in heaven, which we announce on earth. Right. We are, we are mere, merely heralds of what heaven has already decreed. decreed. Mm-hmm. And the, the, other, uh, the other passage, Matthew 18, 18, is, is similar. It uses the same uh, structure of language and the same words, Deo and Luo. Um, same again, the rabbinic phrase used to describe what was forbidden and permitted. And um, in that context, it's also talking in the context of a church, but there in the context of church discipline, where two or three are gathered together, not a prayer meeting, not a worship service, not a Bible study, or a fellowship, a cookie fellowship around the table where Jesus is present. But in that context, church discipline. You're exercising church discipline. And so in exercising church discipline in the church, we have, as the elders of the church and the authority that God has given to us as under-shepherds of Christ, we have the authority to announce God's will concerning this individual that we are disciplining because this is what heaven has decreed. And so we are merely announcing this to the church because we have followed the biblical parameters of church discipline. We've walked through the steps. So when we get to that point, we are announcing to people what God himself in his word has given authority to the church to announce. And once again, it's the, it's the same thing. This is decreed in heaven and it is declared on earth and we can confidently declare that confidently. not out of any arrogance but because we know that scripture has already told us right what heaven's view is right what heaven's will is so, so ice and dean in their book a holy rebellion or spiritual warfare which i mentioned at the very beginning they said this jesus is saying that believers can have confidence that when they justly excommunicate someone on earth they're fulfilling the will of god which has already been determined in heaven this should give them confidence in what they're doing. So that's exactly right. Yep, absolutely. I can't tell you how many times I would hear this all the time, especially Wednesday night prayer meeting. We, on Wednesday nights, we'd have prayer meeting. We'd have a supper and a prayer meeting, and I heard this all the time. Two or three. Where two or three are gathered, and <laughs> we have two or three here. And, and, and this was even before I was a Christian, but my, my mind would immediately jump to, well, what about what if it's just me? 
Yeah. You know, what if I, what if I don't? What if I'm by myself? You know, do, do we have to have two or three here gathered in the same room right. to know that Christ is with us? Apparently. Apparently. So if, if that, uh, if you have heard that as well and it's never made sense to you, well, there's good reason for that because it's totally taken out of context. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, well Jim, there's a, I, we are going to do two programs on this. Yeah, we're out of time. We're, you talk too much. Of, I know I do. I do. Um, but radio program, we're not quite as rigid on the time. So let's go ahead. What are... Uh, do you want to move into the, some of the practical problems? Yes, yeah, you want to save it for yeah, next week. No, the, let's deal with the practical problems of, of uh, the idea of binding and loosing. Um, you'll notice that those who teach that we should bind Satan will never say anything about loosing him, and yet all the passages that we've talked about, uh, except for Matthew uh, 12, mention the loosing of something as well. I mean, Matthew 16 18, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So if the binding speaks of binding Satan, what is the loosing referring to? What are we loosing? Right. And you'll never hear any of them say, well, you can bind Satan and you lose Satan. And you'll never hear anybody pray at the end of a church service, we now lose you, Satan, in the name of Jesus and by the power of his blood. <laughs> right. We, we bound you for the whole church service, but now we're letting you loose now again. We're let you loose. Yeah, but if you have the power to bind him, why don't we have the power to loose him? Right. And if we're binding him, why aren't we loosening him again? Because we've been given authority to do both of them. So if the binding refers to binding Satan, then what does the loosing refer to? Right. Loosing him as well. And who is insane enough to loose him, having, been, having bound him? Right. Why would anybody lose him? But but somebody's losing him. Somebody is because he's Somebody very active. Is. Seems because to be very active. He's very active. Yeah, you know, he's, he's he's he doesn't seem to be bound to me. So you know, when somebody asked me about uh, binding Satan, I said, well. well Somebody sure keeps letting him back out. <laughs> you know, go after that guy. Go ever whoever the fellow is that keeps loosing him because. Boy, if, if Satan is bound right now, I'd, boy, I'd hate to see the state of the world if he was. And he'd be, and he's bound in all kinds of ways. I mean, you think about the number of people who would be binding him constantly. He's somebody is praying for Satan to be bound right now. Right. Yeah. Somewhere on this world, somebody is binding him. Right. And and followed right on the heels of that binding, somebody else is going to bind him. Right. And so this goes on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This type of nonsense is practiced all around the world. He is being bound constantly. Nobody is ever loosing him, and yet he is seems to be more uh, loosed and rampant and free to roam around everywhere today than he ever has been. Right, and he's he's all over the place. Yeah, there. It, so who's loosing him, or does the binding just wear off after a while? Yeah, I mean, it, you think again. It comes back to what I said a program or two ago. A little common sense. Yeah. Goes a long way in clearing a lot of this stuff. How long does the binding last? Is it a thirty-minute binding, a one-hour binding? When okay, if, maybe the demons are setting him free. Maybe so. Maybe because maybe we're maybe, maybe we're binding their, one guy, but not binding all of them. Maybe and we, so the demons are loosing him as fast as we can bind up him. And the demons have got some some shears and they're just kind of snipping <laughs> free. You know, I mean, when you're when you're in stage four REM at three o'clock in the morning in Nebraska, somebody is wide awake in the Philippines. Binding Satan's. I mean, it's like there's seven billion people on the face yeah. of the planet, and somewhere, twenty four seven, there's going to be probably a lot of people. They're tying them up all over the place, and it just makes no sense. And if we could bind Satan, why not bind him permanently? Permanently, right? From all people, from all places, events, from the whole world, for the rest of eternity. Yeah, but there's only Scripture says there's only going to be one time when Satan is bound, and it's in Revelation twenty when he's cast into the bottomless pit. He will be bound for the millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will deceive the nations no longer, Scripture says. But until that time, we are told that he is a roaring lion, roaming about, seeking whom he may devour, walking to and fro throughout the earth. That is how Satan is today. There is nothing in Scripture that suggests that we can alter or affect his ability or his freedom to roam about and do what he is wanting to do through something that we pray. 
Right. Yeah, he's not he's not bound. He's a, he's a roaring lion. And there's no another practical problem with this is that there is no example anywhere in scripture of the apostles doing this. It's not taught in the epistles. Uh, none of the passages of the New Testament that speak of Satan speak of him being bound or of binding him or of the necessity to bind him. There's no example of it in Acts, in any of the prayers of the other church, in any of the prayers recorded of the apostles. We have four of the Apostle Paul's prayers recorded in Scripture. Nowhere in any of those prayers is anything like that mentioned, that he yeah. but binds Satan. We have no example of him doing binding him before he went into a city, into Athens or Corinth or any place like that, which we know was was steeped in idolatry. There's no example of him binding the devil before any of his evangelistic crusades or his missions trips or anything. Absolutely without precedent in Scripture. And to be silly, again, there's no ropes or handcuffs or chains in the armor of God. Yeah. So we can't do it. Right, right. And But it makes us feel good. We think yeah. we're accomplishing something. We bind Satan, and now he can't affect us. Right. And so we think... We have we have employed this carnal weapon, this man-made weapon that we have we have made up out of whole cloth, and and we do something, we say something, we think we're having a spiritual effect when it's it's that much nonsense. Yep, absolutely. Wow, Jim, good stuff, man, good stuff. Thank you very very much for joining us. And again, the the book website is truthorterritory.com. Truthorterritory.com. Um, and and by the way, there's there's a lot more in the book than what we're discussing so uh um uh, i i it's great for me to listen to a radio program but i want to see something written i want to see it in black and white i want to uh, and uh, so i encourage you get the book truth or territory at uh, truth or territory dot com so jim thank you very much thank you next week lord willing we will uh we will talk about rebuking the devil talk about binding and the misconceptions of that next week rebuking the devil, and you would think probably best to bind him before you're <laughs> All right. You don't want to insult somebody who's free like that. Yeah, exactly. Cruising for a bruising. <laughs> all right, dear ones, until then, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to the Justin Peters program. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or would like to invite him to come and speak at your church or conference, contact him through his website, justinpeters.org. That's justinpeters.org.